Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. And our story today takes place in Laramie, Wyoming. This is a story of a boy who became a man and held on to a secret I'm sure some of you can relate to. One of my favorite quotes by Etta Turner is, in a world where you can be anything, be yourself. We as humans share one common trait, which is the desire to live authentically without judgment. What happens when you encounter someone who hates who you were born to be and makes the choice that your life is not as valuable as theirs? Matthew Shepard, known as Matt by friends and family, was known as a very social kid, unlike his brother Logan, who was very much known as an introvert. Matt loved everyone and enjoyed making everyone around him feel better. It's something people who knew him will never forget. He was very much loved by his parents, Judy and Dennis Shepard. He enjoyed playing softball with his father all day long. Matt even carried around a stuffed bunny named Oscar and called him his best friend, which I find simply adorable. He carried him around everywhere he went as a young child. When he got a little older, he enjoyed writing poetry and leaving handwritten poems in the neighbor's mailboxes. He was soon warned by relatives that leaving mail in mailboxes without a stamp was illegal, so he started finding pretty rocks to leave in their mailboxes instead. The neighbors were aware it was Matt and knew his intentions were nothing but good. Oh, that's so sweet. I would love to get notes and pretty rocks from a neighbor kid. Right? When I was younger, most kids just wanted to play outside. They weren't worried about putting a smile on their neighbor's faces. What a beautiful trait as a kid to have. (laughs) Right? Selfless generosity is so rare. Yes. Around eight years old, his family members knew he was gay. His favorite costume to wear during Halloween, which I find fabulous, was Dolly Parton. According to his mother, Judy, she knew he was gay but didn't want to ask. The first known person that Matt came out to as a teen was his guidance counselor, Walt Bolden. Walt stated it was very obvious that Matt thought about what it meant to come out often and ended up asking him. Matt said he was gay, but he was afraid of his family rejecting him, which is very common and a fair feeling for most people in the LGBTQ community. And can I just add, this is why I think it's so important to talk to your children about sexuality early on. I talked to my daughter about it when she was six years old. She knows that at any time in her life, she can come to me and her dad and tell us who she is without any worry. She knows to respect those who choose to not be what some in society believe is the norm. This can be solved by simply opening up the door for the conversation. Yes, even if you aren't comfortable asking your kids outright, just making sure that your words and your actions show them that you support them no matter what will have a huge impact on their willingness to talk to you. And like you are, Sham, every parent needs to be teaching their children to respect others, especially those who are different than them. In 10th grade, Matt's dad's job relocated to Saudi Arabia, so they moved as a family. This seemed like a good idea to Judy. She wanted to broaden her son's world and have them explore more outside of Wyoming. Matt ended up going to a boarding school outside of Saudi Arabia at the American School in Switzerland. He enjoyed his time there, and his friends became his family. He had a lot of friends, including girls, guys, and older friends. He was definitely the type of person that loved people and socializing. He was known as the guy that could be in any group. Matt was also into politics and wanted to one day be a politician and make a change in this world. At school, he was in a lot of school plays and dreamed of being a famous actor one day. 
His counselor, Walt, stated, and I quote, In many ways, Matt was always trying to play a role as far as what he presented to the world. I think he survived by using his acting skills. That's what he spent a lot of his life doing, just playing the part and trying to protect himself. And sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't. I think that's something that we can all relate to in that stage of life. Oh, yes, especially in high school when everyone's judging you. Sadly, Matt was a victim, and not just of the tragedy that took his life. Things were happening to him much earlier in life. And I'll tell you more about that after a quick message to our listeners. So while at the American school in Switzerland, the school often organized travels around Europe. One of those trips was to Morocco, where the unthinkable happened. According to his classmate and friend, Kate Chill, around 2 a.m. she heard a loud knock at the door, and it was Matt screaming to let him in. When Kate opened the door, a shaken Matt was shirtless and missing his shoes and still screaming. Kate grabbed him as they both fell to the floor and held him. When Kate asked what happened, Matt told her and her roommate that he had been raped. When Matt went out that night, he was pulled into an alley by six men that robbed him and raped him. A trip that was supposed to be a nice getaway in a place he wasn't surrounded with those who knew him and he could finally be his true self, it was taken from him. He was never the same after that attack, according to family and friends. I don't think any of us would be the same after something like that. Imagine finally feeling free to be yourself and then regretting it because of someone else's evil and violating actions. That trauma had an impact on his life forever, but it didn't stop him from being himself again, eventually. Once Matt was in his freshman year of college, he called his mother Judy and finally worked up the courage to tell her he was gay. Judy's words to her son were, What took you so long to tell me? Matt was shocked and relieved that his mother had known all this time. His parents made it very clear that nothing would change and Matt would always be their son. Soon after that, Matt came out to a majority of his friends and extended family. I love her reaction. Casually accepting like, yeah, and? That is how it should be. That is definitely how it should be. After coming out, Matt decided to leave school and move west to Denver, Colorado. Those around him believe he began embarking on a somewhat spiritual quest where he could be openly gay and be the person he always knew he was. Matt had even tried attending a church across the street from his apartment. He wanted to confess that he was gay and hopefully find some comfort with people that were supposed to be loving Christians. Instead, they shunned him away and told him being gay is wrong and gay people go to hell. With this move came depression. Matt was known to have a messy apartment and became a little closed off towards friends and family at the time. Some of them even suggested that he may have fallen into some drug activity. But he wanted to go back to college and he wanted to be happy. Matt ended up moving back to Wyoming in a small conservative town called Laramie. He enrolled at the University of Wyoming and ended up joining an LGBTQ student group. According to his guidance counselor, Walt, Matt told him for the first time he had felt safe in Laramie. As it turns out, it was the most dangerous place he could be. Before he was attacked, he was having a wonderful day. He felt like he had made the greatest choice by going back to school. His mental health was the best it had been in three or four years. On October 6, 1998, Matt had just left campus while attending an LGBTQ meeting 
Instead of heading back to his apartment, Matt decided to go have a drink by himself at a local restaurant called Fireside. According to the bartender working that night, Matt came in around 8.30 p.m. It wasn't unusual for Matt to go there for a few beers. Soon after, local residents Russell Henderson and Aaron McKinney came in and they appeared to have just gotten off work. They ordered a pitcher of beer and paid for it in change. Aaron was known around Fireside as a regular. Most reports say Aaron and Russell noticed Matt paying for his drinks and figured he had more money where that came from. Others say that the three men knew each other and they suspected that Matt might have some meth on him. Either way, Aaron and Russell went to the bathroom together and came up with a plan to rob Matt. The plan consisted of them pretending to be gay, strike up a conversation with Matt, and then rob him. Now, Russell was known as the quiet type and more of a follower to Aaron. Aaron was known as a bad seed around town. Matt was doing what he usually does that night, just mingling with the people around him, including Aaron and Russell. The bartender found this unusual since they didn't speak to each other when they came up to order their first round of beers and were sitting right next to Matt. Later that night, Matt left the bar with Aaron and Russell. This would be the last time acquaintances and friends would see Matt. I find that really insulting when anyone pretends to be gay. Also, the bartender likely also found it weird knowing these two men didn't usually act like that and were clearly straight. Right? It's not like they were strangers to everyone that works there. They're regulars. If only someone had called them out on it. Yeah, they didn't put much thought into that plan. Conjurers, if you see something like this, please say something. So they hopped in Aaron's car while Russell drove. Soon after, Aaron told Matt, we're not gay and you're about to get jacked. Wow, they sound real intelligent. Right? What a clever guy. (laughs) (laughs) So anyways, Aaron began beating Matt and asked for his wallet, which he gave up with no hesitation. But this didn't stop Aaron from continuing to beat him. They drove out to a prairie and drug Matt out of the car. He fought hard and the struggle caused his watch to come off. Russell used a clothesline to tie Matt to a log fence and started to pistol whip him with the butt of a Smith & Weston 357 Magnum. They then stole his shoes and left him there to die. Matt's injuries that night were severe. He suffered 18 blows to the head and face, four skull fractures, and the final injury that ultimately took his life was a blow behind his right ear. The butt of the gun came down and crushed his skull brainstem and tore his ear away from his head holy shit yeah matt was tied to that fence for 18 hours until a teenager riding his bike saw what he thought was a scarecrow but after a closer look realized it was a real person deputy reggie flutie responded to a call from dispatch stating someone had been beaten up the deputy didn't receive any more information than that and had no idea what she was walking into when she drove out there The drive took her 70 yards off the road near a large house. When she got there, she noticed 21-year-old Matt Shepard was tied to a small section of the fence with his hands behind his back. He was still alive, but clearly in bad shape. Covered with dried blood, face swollen beyond recognition, with two tear streaks coming from his eyes. His body seemed almost lifeless. Matt was taken to Ivinson Memorial Hospital in Laramie 
but his injuries were so severe they transferred him across the state line to a more advanced trauma ward in Fort Collins, Colorado, where he was put into a coma and left on life support. Oh my god, was he alone? For a while he was. Matt's family was contacted in Saudi Arabia from the hospital. According to his father, Dennis, he initially thought his son had been in a car crash, only to find out later that he had been viciously attacked. His family immediately hopped on a plane and prepared for the worst. This was clearly a hate crime to his peers, and they made sure to contact several news sources in different cities, including Casper and Cheyenne. They didn't want Matt's story to be covered up or forgotten. It felt like overnight what happened to Matt grabbed the attention of the entire country. Everyone was anxious over the next few days, waiting to see if Matt was going to survive this brutal attack and waiting for the authorities to catch whoever was responsible. Speaking of those responsible, what were Aaron and Russell doing during this time? Well, after leaving Matt to die, Aaron and Russell drove back to the Fireside Lounge where they encountered two young Hispanic men allegedly slashing tires. The four men got into a fight and police were called. When police arrived, Aaron and Russell took off running and got away, leaving their truck behind. Police searched the truck and found the gun, Matthew's shoes, and his credit card. But police didn't know what to make of these items yet because Matt was still tied to that fence, struggling to survive. This evidence would be crucial to the investigation, though, as soon as Matt was found and taken to the hospital for treatment. That's when police started to make the connection. Not long after that event, Aaron McKinney allegedly told his girlfriend, I'm pretty sure I killed a fag. Wow, what a trash statement to make. Uh, yeah, what a piece of shit. Aaron, Russell, and their girlfriends attempted to destroy any evidence of what they had done to Matt. But on October 10th, Aaron and Russell were arrested and charged with first-degree murder, kidnapping, and robbery. Their girlfriends were also arrested and charged as accessories after the fact for helping cover up any evidence. Aaron was extremely stubborn throughout the first days of the investigation, but eventually confessed to everything. By this time, the entire world was sending their support to the Shepherd family, and no one was expecting him to come out of this deep coma he was in. Even if he did, he would be left in a vegetative state. Matt's parents knew they had to take him off life support, but had a hard time bringing themselves to actually do it. They reached out to his former guidance counselor, Walt, and asked him to go to Matt and tell him it's time to stop fighting, and it was time to let go. Oh my gosh, my heart is breaking right now for Matt and his parents. I can't imagine being put in that position, like, ever. I can't even think about what it must have been like for them. Matt was taken off life support six days after the attack, and officially passed away at 12.53 a.m. on October 12, 1998, with his family at his bedside. In court, Russell cut a deal, pleading guilty to murder and kidnapping, and agreed to testify against Aaron in exchange for two consecutive life sentences rather than the death penalty. Aaron went to trial and attempted to use the gay panic defense, claiming that he went temporarily insane after being sexually propositioned by his victim. The prosecutor stated, That defense is atrocious. It should not be used in any court in these United States. It gives people an excuse to harm another person. The judge agreed and dismissed the defense. The jury found Aaron McKinney guilty of premeditated murder, 
but struggled to agree on whether he should be executed. Dennis and Judy Shepard addressed the courtroom and Aaron directly, arguing on his behalf against the death penalty. They looked him dead in the eyes and said, I would like nothing better than to see you die, Mr. McKinney. However, this is the time to begin the healing process, to show mercy to someone who refused to show any mercy. Mr. McKinney, I am going to grant you life, as hard as it is for me to do so, because of Matthew. That is so big of her, and I don't know if I would have that forgiveness in my heart. However, no one knows how they would act in situations most of us deem unimaginable. Matthew Shepard's death caused so much emotion, outrage, and fear in the LGBTQ community. What happened to him could have happened to anyone, and did happen to many others as well. As awful as this case was, the community hoped that this would be the case that made policymakers care and see that people in the LGBTQ community, like Matt, were in need of protection. Making people who commit hate crimes finally be held accountable for their actions. Could this be the case that made homophobic and biased individuals care? Celebrities like Ellen DeGeneres shared her outrage towards his murder as well. She stated while in tears, I'm so pissed off and I cannot stop crying. Then-President Bill Clinton stated, Hate and prejudice are not American values. Matt's death caused an outpour of protests around the country and anti-protests for weeks. His mom, Judy, became a prominent LGBTQ rights activist and established the Matthew Shepard Foundation. On October 28, 2009, 11 years later, the LGBTQ community and Matt's family and friends were finally heard. The Hate Crime Prevention Act, commonly known as the Matthew Shepard Act, or Shepard Act for short, was officially assigned legislation put into law by our former President Barack Obama. The Shepard Bird Act is the first statute allowing federal criminal prosecution of hate crimes motivated by the victim's actual or perceived sexual orientation or gender identity. In Matthew's own written words from his journal, originally read from his friend Michelle from the documentary Matt Shepard, A Friend of Mine, she read the following entry. I am funny, sometimes forgetful and messy and lazy. I am not a lazy person, though. I am giving and understanding and formal and polite. I am sensitive. I am honest. I am sincere. I am not a pest. I am my own person. I am warm. I love helping. I love smiling. I love being myself. I love learning. I love eating. I love airports. I love hugs. I really am funny, nice, hopeful, energetic, giving, sometimes selfish, sincere, generous, irritable, gay, cute, interesting, smart, poor, humble, and outgoing. I think about life, love, God, the future, clothes, money, friends, my family, expectations, the air, people's feelings, TV, war, terrorism, and I think about myself. Most of us have someone in our lives who chose who they knew they were always meant to be and love who they know they were always meant to love. We protect them at all costs and will stand up for anyone in the LGBTQ community because we all deserve to live in our truth regardless of what the next person believes. There's some of you who may have grown up in a conservative home like myself and had to learn about anything outside of heterosexuality on your own. 
There's nothing wrong with not understanding fully and wanting to be educated on this beautiful community. Stick around after our organization shout out today because we asked a very special friend of ours to share her experiences with our listeners. The Matthew Shepard Foundation was formed in 1998 by his mother, Judy Shepard, and has been active for over 22 years. The Matthew Shepard Foundation's mission is to amplify the story of Matthew Shepard to inspire individuals, organizations, and communities to embrace the dignity and equality of all people. Through local, regional, and national outreach, they empower individuals to find their voice, to create change, and challenge communities to identify and address hate that lives within our schools, neighborhoods, and homes. Their work is an extension of Matt's passion to foster a more caring and just world. They share his story and embody his vigor for civil rights to change the hearts and minds of others, to accept everyone as they are. For more information on hate crime prevention and youth resources, go to www.matthewshepherd.org or call 303-830-7400. All right, Conjurers, as Sham mentioned earlier, we would like to introduce you to our friend, Andrea Pierce. So Andrea, can you please start out by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hi, Steph. Hi, Sham. Um, well, I'm about a 50-year-old transsexual woman. I come from Oklahoma, from rural country. Um, and I um, moved here probably about three years ago to get married. And I'm loving the Pacific Northwest. And that's really about it. What are the pronouns that you go by, Andrea? I go by she, her, her pronouns. Okay. So has anyone deliberately disrespected you by calling you by any other pronouns? It has happened. Um, early on when I first started taking estrogen, it happened more often. Um, at times like when I'd be shopping, someone, uh, usually a stranger out in public, would intentionally misgender me. They'd kind of make it a point to make themselves heard that it was very intentional. But for the most part, no. Well, that sounds like complete ignorance to me. I don't like it. (laughs) What was it like growing up for you? Oh, growing up was very challenging for me. I um, first knew that I should have been born a girl, probably about the age of four, which would have been back in the early 70s. And of course, I didn't have any words for that back then. And uh, my parents made it very clear to me in no uncertain terms that that was something that was not going to happen and that I would not speak about. So I very quickly learned to keep that very much secret, which meant growing up as, um, as a male and going through male puberty. So um, it made um, life very challenging, especially since my mannerisms are very naturally feminine and as much as I tried to pretend to be a boy it just didn't work so it was always assumed that I was a gay man. So you mentioned that you knew around the time that you were four and that you told your parents but what was it like for you to come out to the rest of your family and your friends and even strangers and when did that happen? 
that happened in my mid 20s um in, in the 90s uh mid 90s i think maybe about 95 it was uh terrifying because i had spent so many years um trying to keep that secret to especially the family members to like my mother and other people it was very terrifying but it was also very liberating when i was actually able to express who i really am finally to them uh, strangers was I didn't really come out to them when I transitioned I just you know going out into public was especially terrifying at first especially in Oklahoma in the late 90s I was always concerned about being assaulted so it was pretty scary um, but of course as time went on the longer I was on estrogen the less and less people thought that maybe I was male and it became easier. Yeah, I definitely know Oklahoma is kind of known to be quite conservative. Did you feel supported by your community and your neighborhood? Um, at first, absolutely not. Uh, not when I came out in the mid-90s, but I made a new set of friends, and in the 90s, being transgender was in Oklahoma especially was still kind of an unknown thing so after I'd been on the estrogen for a couple of years I was able to make new friends I was able to um, enjoy a level of anonymity people just assumed that I was a very tall broad-shouldered woman um, instead of assuming that I was transgender so it wasn't so much about support as it was about anonymity and I really liked that and I did make very good friends that I could trust in especially in the pagan community that's awesome we love the pagan community so have you heard of the Matthew Shepard case and what happened to him oh absolutely I, I remember the day that I heard I read it online it was the day or maybe the day after it happened um, I was in Tulsa so how did this story have an impact on your life? It was devastating for me um, and heartbreaking. Um, I just could not imagine that level of cruelty and hatred. And um, I was actually really broken up by it. There were several days before I could even come out of the apartment because of that uh, incident. Wow. Yeah, it was definitely an inhumane act on such an innocent person that was simply just trying to be himself. So I can definitely understand how that affected you. So how has your life changed over time? Well, um, transition. Like since you transitioned. Since I've transitioned. It's been very liberating. Um, transitioning has given me um, a life that's worth living um, so I've really able to be myself now and being able to be myself it's made it easier for me to make friends and and have a fulfilling life that's awesome so have you ever been bullied for simply being who you choose to be oh absolutely um, most of the bullying I experienced throughout my life was before I transitioned, actually, um, I 
had been sexually assaulted several times and physically assaulted um, for um, being perceived as a, an effeminate male. Um, so there was lots of bullying before the transition. After transition, there's has been more um, not bullying as much as actual, you know. Um, I've been pursued by a group of men once that had knives and was able to get in my car and get away before they could catch up with me. Um, so it's been kind of dangerous. That's terrible. Okay. Yeah, that's very scary. I'm so happy you were able to escape that experience. And it's really unfortunate that a lot of people in the LGBTQ community, you know, don't escape things like that and are forced to suffer through that. So while traveling, did you ever experience any form of hate language or mistreatment? Actually, no. Um, people in Europe and in the Middle East never treated me with anything other than just um, civil kindness, no cross looks. Um, I had to have emergency surgery in Dubai, and while I was there, the doctors and staff all treated me with the utmost respect. No one ever questioned my gender. Um, they just, and, and they knew, they knew that I was trans uh, in the hospital, but they never treated me like any other woman other than any other woman. So I was very lucky overseas. That's good. That's awesome. It's Yeah, it's good to know that there are places in this world that are just like so accepting and not judgmental just because you are trying to be who you know you, who you were born to be. So that's really good to hear. So Andrea, I know you have a history of working as a contractor with the U.S. military. What was your experience working with the military in general? Mostly with contractors who were mostly from southern Texas. So they were um, tended to be kind of cold and standoffish. But I was very lucky because uh, my roommate and battle buddy, she always had my back the whole entire time I was overseas. So I I'm very grateful to her, but a lot of people treated me, you know, very coldly. Um, and the military was professional, uh, but they also seemed somewhat standoffish as well. The U.S. has a long way to go in regards to the LGBTQ community. We have a very long way to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what is some advice that you have for any listeners that may need it right now? If I would have any advice or any message that I would like to um, pass along to people listening would be that if you know someone who is transgender or gay or lesbian or bi, or especially if you have a child or you know someone has a child to, um, if you have a child especially to give them complete acceptance and support don't ever make them feel that they are broken or defective that's the number one main thing that causes suicide in people in my community is that rejection from parents and feeling like 
were broken, were not right. Um, so I would say get professional guidance and support for a child, listen to them, and and if you have friends, just love them and support them and treat them just like any other human being. Thank you so much for talking with us, Andrea. It's been it's been great to hear from you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> to view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode was done by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. Sham, what is our Conjure Tip of the Week? This week, I'd like to highlight the black candle and how to manifest its powers for an intention. Next time you want to declare justice or absorb negative energy, light a black candle. And remember to light your candle in a sacred and cleansed place. It's also important not to blow out your candle unless you want to blow away your intention. Let it burn out on its own. Yes, I'm obsessed with candles. They are so versatile and have so many uses and benefits. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.